1: Today on this episode, the unvarnished truth of what humans really want. And where are we getting that data from? Google, Google, Google. The entire planet uses Google. It's a verb and a global technology company. Talk about good branding. It's always good to create a brand new word. Whether it's to research a pasta recipe or look up a song you heard on Yellowstone or even Scroll potential causes of joint pain, our Google search history leaves quite a digital footprint. And as Seth Stevens-Vitowitz explains, that footprint can often tell a far greater truth than we ever knew. You're going to love Seth. He's actually a very funny, cool guy. He's an author, a data scientist, and he's a speaker who studies what we can learn from tons of anonymous data, big data. He wrote a book in 2017 called Everybody Lies. It ended up being a New York Times bestseller, an economist book of the year. He's an op-ed writer for the New York Times. He's worked as a visiting lecturer at the Wharton School. He even spent time within the belly of the beast as a data scientist for Google. Also has a BA in philosophy from Stanford and a PhD in economics from Harvard. He's a Jersey guy, and maybe that explains his love and fandom for the Knicks, the Mets, and the Jets, which probably makes his Google results full of disappointing sports updates. So to really understand what motivates humans, it's not the answer the search engines give us. True data is found in the questions that are asked. Let's get started. Seth, welcome to the Retire Student Podcast. I I don't know exactly where to start here, but I, I guess if we sum up your work and your latest... First of all, let's just start with this. Everybody Lies is your very popular book. And essentially what I've gathered from all of this is that you're able to figure out why we are lying by figuring out what people are really searching for. So maybe just explain to the, to our audience here, before we get into happiness, before we get into retirement, talk to me about your data science.
2: Yes, that was my first book called Everybody Lies and it was how you can use uh, the internet to see who we really are. And a lot of it was analyzing aggregate anonymous Google search data. And kinda the idea is that people are really, really honest. So, you know, there's some dark topics where if you ask people in a survey, you know, are you racist? Nobody's like, yeah, yeah, of course I'm racist. They'd say, they'd say, no, of course not. And then, but then if you analyze Google searches, you see, oh, these are the parts of the country that have the highest racism or questions about sexuality or uh, you know, dark, but important topics, child abuse, abortion, do it yourself abortions. There are all these topics where people are typing on Google what they're really interested, in, really thinking. And you know, by analyzing the anonymous aggregate data, you kind of get a better, more accurate view of humankind than we've ever had before.
1: Well, let's get some examples of this. And, and uh, I don't know if these are all, you're looking at big data An- now. And this is important too. you. This is just anonymous data, right? Are you yeah, able exactly. to yeah, yeah. T- tell us just about that for a second? Are you able to just aggregate? Is this, do you have to be so, working for a search place or you can, you know, so a outside? lot of it.
2: So Google trends is a tool that any that's uh, available to anybody. And you can see kind of where and when searches are most are made Uh, and it's a tool, it's still underutilized. It's used more and more. When I first started, like I I give a lot of lectures, uh, a a speaker around, around the country, around the world. And I first started describing Google trends. I was like, what the hell is that? And now, you know, at least 60, 70% of people have at least heard of Google trends. I think a lot of people aren't using it as much as maybe they could be.
1: And, and again, it's just taking the raw big data and seeing what people care about, what, what people are searching for. Yeah, exactly. Then how do you back into things like climate being a factor in, let's say depression, uh, the thought around when do you get hooked on your favorite baseball team? Like what ages do you get hooked? And, and that's, fa- let me start with that one just for a second. Cause that's fascinating uh, to me because I, I live in a melting pot city, Atlanta. You, you, ha- you don't have the strongest pro sport, Uh, loyalty here. I think it's because it's a newer, younger city where people have been moving and moving and moving. So you're coming from New Jersey or Pennsylvania for me, and you grew up kind of an Eagles fan, kind of a Phillies fan, but you don't hate the Braves. So Wendy, do you ever switch over? The answer is not really. And then I see my kids, I got four boys and they're all very into sports. I find that they're, they're kind of into like, 10 different teams because they like one player from this team. And I don't see any real heavy loyalty uh, in pro sports when it comes to my kids. So tell me about when you get hooked on a team.
2: Yeah. So this is a study actually using Facebook data, uh, likes of different teams. And you see that uh, kind of the teams get a big bump among males. If they were good when males were about eight years old, that's the biggest bump. So, you know, the the Mets, my uh, team, Uh, They won uh, two championships, 1969 and 1986. And they have the most fans, uh, 1977 and uh, 1994, kind of when people were, uh, or or no, sorry, they have most fans among men born 1961 and uh, 1978. Kind of those boys were eight years old when the Mets won championship. And you see that kind of throughout teams that, Uh, If the team's really good at eight years old among boys, they kind of win them for life. Uh, Now I haven't seen how's that, how that's changed. Uh, You might, you might be correct. I've heard that there is some evidence that younger generations, the idea of a favorite team is kind of passe, uh, which is shocking to me. You know, that's kind of a big part of my childhood. It was finding my teams. Uh, And I think, you know, people are moving away from that model. Maybe everyone's so into fantasy sports now. uh, So it's much more about the players and, and the players all move around so much.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's interesting point you make, is that you're right. They're into the players because they do care about their fantasy teams, which is really just about what player does what, not so much about a particular team. And here in Atlanta, the Falcons went to the Super Bowl. My kids were in that sweet spot. You know, they were five, six, eight, nine, 10, and the Falcons lost the Super Bowl and it was very depressing. It was like because we grabbed it out of the jaws of victory and the jaws of defeat whatever that is because we almost we we were about to win the Super Bowl and then we let it go to the Patriots in the last, you know, we just it was a disaster and it almost crushed my children's loyalty to them maybe forever.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I can relate. The Knicks lost a championship in 1994 against the Houston Rockets. And I still think that may have been the darkest day of my life, like that game seven, <laughs> uh, which, you know, all the things that have happened since then, they don't really quite compare, uh, you know, that, that childhood brain, but I don't think it turned me against the team. So I don't know. Uh, well,
1: what but, about, so what about this? So let's talk about, this is interesting. You do a lot of studies around depression in different states, how it's treated. And then Just the thought around climate as a factor in depression. So how are you figuring that out throughout? Well, it just is
2: very clear in the Google search data that warm climates, I mean, it's not so shocking, but the magnitude of it is pretty unbelievable that warm climates just have way lower levels of uh, depression in winter months, you know, in Hawaii versus Chicago. uh, You know, the depression rates might be similar in the summer months, but in the winter, it's just through the roof in Chicago and much lower in Hawaii. Uh, so that's kind of the value of these big, huge data sets, and other scholars have found similar things looking around the world. Kind of the just how much climate seems to play a role in depression, and it's definitely something to think about if you do suffer from depression. Uh, should you be escaping uh, those cold winter months uh, in, if you if you live in a colder climate?
1: Yeah, it's more than just a, a passing ex- uh, good idea. It's it's a very real clinical thing for a lot of people.
2: Yeah, seasonal affective disorder, but the magnitude of it kind of did surprise me. uh, Where I think I said that, you know, if you look at kind of just the data, it seems uh, being in a warmer climate in the winter months may be twice as effective as antidepressants for fighting depression. So, uh, and it's it's not something that uh, you know a lot of people think about. I actually have suffered from depression a lot, and I live in New York, and I've been kind of down this winter. And we I've taken two trips. I went to the Caribbean, and then I went to Florida, and I did notice like, oh, my mood's a lot better when I'm around sunshine and warmth. Uh, but I don't like I haven't made, you know, any drastic decisions, like, well, maybe I should be in a climate like this more uh regularly.
1: Yeah, you need to listen to your own data, I guess. It it, it is
2: hard. Uh, you know, I have a whole second book, Don't Trust Your Gut, and I just present all this data on kind of how you should make the biggest decisions in life and you know, what career you should pick and how you can be happier and uh, everyone's always like, you know, so how have you changed your life based on this data? And I, uh, I kind of sometimes exaggerate the extent to which I've made life changes because I find it just so hard, uh, even when you know <laughs> the data, you know, that it's good to escape a winter, a bad winter climate, or, you know, that, uh, you know, it, the importance of socializing for, for, for happiness, uh, or, you know, that, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur's a better path to wealth and being an employee and you know, all these things. And yet, you know, you're, it's so hard to act on them for me. And I think for a lot of people,
1: well, let's just go right into that. I want to talk about don't trust your gut. And I think you say that we, we make all these major life decisions flying very blind, I guess, or or we're using our our gut. How so? Tell me more about that.
2: Well, I I just think if I, I reflected back on my own life and, you know, I'm a data scientist. I've written out two books on data science. I have a PhD, basically in data science. I worked at Google as a data scientist. I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying the contrast between all, so much of my life has been devoted to data and the way I make decisions was really striking to me that I just never, like it was. I was single for, for you know, many years. I'm not single now, but when I was single, I was never like, let me look at the data on what I should look for in a partner. Or let me look at the data and how I can date better. I just never. And that's bizarre because I'm a data scientist. I believe so much in data. Like, why do I not do that? And think about my happiness. You know, very rarely was I consulting charts and data on what things would might make me happy, happier, how I picked a career. It was basically just totally random. I wasn't looking at data on what careers make the best, you know, financial uh, offer the best financial opportunities or the best happiness or any of those questions. And, you know, I figured if I'm not using data, then most other people must not be using data as well. And I'm going to just spend a few years uh, looking at the data on some of these big questions that every, you know, pretty much everybody faces at some point.
1: Well, let's go into that. So let's start with the relationships. And I know you talk a lot about, I guess, the science behind finding somebody that's the right match. I, I clearly most of us do not do this. And it sounds like, I don't know if you see yourself longer term being, well, an advocate to say, look, please listen to the data and implement it in your life. Um, tell us about dating and relationships and wh- wh- what are we looking for in partners? If we, if we would just follow the data.
2: Well, I'll, I'll tell you what data says, and I, I, I think you'll understand why this one is a particularly hard one to follow. But the data basically says that all of us are looking for the wrong things in terms of long-term happiness. Because, uh, you know, we're, uh, many of us, if you look at the data from online dating sites, what are people drawn to? Well, you know, everyone's drawn, most people are drawn to hot people. That's kind of the number one predictor of dating success, someone who's physically conventional Can you attractive. define
1: that for our audience? When you say hot, what does that mean?
2: <laughs> I think most people know it when they see it, but.
1: Uh, <laughs> right, okay, uh, cool, cool.
2: It's, it's if, if you ask people to rate someone one to 10, you know, the, got, uh, researchers have said, uh, rate, uh, th- these people want to 10, you know, on attractiveness and the tens are just going to get way more messages than the fives, the fours, the threes, uh, you know, although, uh, yeah, I'll get more of that in, in a bit, but, uh, so, you know, okay. Conventionally attractive people, tall people, tall men, uh, you know, heights, such a huge advantage in, uh, in, in, in males, uh, men in certain occupations, women find more attractive lawyers, uh, firemen, uh, even controlling for income certain occupations do better than like accountants do tend to do very very bad in in online dating uh on average uh and not not that an accountant can't do well but uh those are the averages <laughs> uh uh you know people in hospitality males in hospitality do do really bad uh so uh so we're looking for all these things oh race it's it's not mm-hmm. talked about there's almost more evidence for racism in dating than any other arena of life. I would argue Whoa. Uh,
1: there's how so? How so? Well,
2: there's just overwhelming evidence that certain groups, Asian males and African-American women in particular, just are way less likely to get responses in online uh, dating sites. It's, it's pretty, the, you know, and, and you can uh, correct for other factors like the income that people have and still uh, racial dynamics play a big role in how many messages uh, people uh, receive or how likely their messages are to be responded to. So we're looking for all these things, then you, and that's been proven with uh, dating sites, and then data from dating sites. So you compare that to what actually makes people happy. Well, there have been big studies using machine learning models, eleven thousand couples, and it basically shows that everything we look for has just about no predictive power for long-term relationship happiness. So people <laughs> okay. who end up with someone hotter, like I didn't know. I'm like, maybe you get have a hot wife, a hot husband. <laughs> like you're going to have more wild sex. You're going to be, you're going to feel good every time you bring them to a party, you're going to be happy in a relationship, but there's basically no correlation between how hot your spouse is and how happy you are in your uh, relationship. Uh, similarly, okay. how okay. tall your spouse is, uh, what occupation they're in.
1: So th- so again, none of those things do correlate to happiness race, at all. Is yeah. What you're
2: saying. Not, none of the things. And the things that do like yeah, what the does most, it's these, ve- it's these psychological traits Like, you know, those psychological quizzes for me, my girl, my romantic partners are always giving me these psychological tests. Like, do you have, uh, you know, what kind of attachment style are you? And I'm always like, this is so annoying. I just want to watch, you know, a baseball game. Uh, Like, let me do something else with my time. And it turns out these are like the only things that predict romantic happiness. So if your partner has something called a secure attachment style, which I didn't even know what that meant. Uh, But, you know, you can take a test online and see or you can give a potential partner more more relevantly a test and people have secure attachment styles, uh, kind of the way they relate to other people, uh, probably due to childhood. Uh, That does uh, increase your chance of being happiness. People are more conscientious. People have a growth mindset. People are more satisfied with life. Uh, So. We over massively overvalue these superficial traits, and I think money
1: and looks, right? Money so and dating looks is and money and looks, which yeah. mean nothing long term.
2: Very little long term. Uh, money does have a tiny bit, but very very little. And then the things, and we really undervalue these psychological traits,
1: which are again the, your attachment style. If you have a growth mindset, if you're a, a conscientious person, that that ends up correlating with higher levels of happiness over time. If your time, partner has those. It.
2: Yeah. You're going to be happier if you end up with a partner with those qualities.
1: Wow. So we are, t- it's totally flip-flopped, right? We're yeah. thinking about the next six months and we're not, when we're dating, we're not thinking about this next like 50 years. That's the, that's the problem. That's part of it. That's the challenge yeah. maybe.
2: <laughs> but you know, I tell All people right. that I'm like, yeah, so don't worry about the looks of your partner. And I want just like, F- you Seth. Uh, I don't know if I can use that language on this podcast. You
1: can, it's, this is like the Joe Rogan podcast.
2: Okay. They're like, well, maybe we
1: believe, I don't know. We can always bleep that part out, but no, please speak as freely as humanly possible. Okay. The the data science shows that we appreciate that. Yeah.
2: My data science on how people have received my dating advice is they do not like it. They're like, tell me how to get a hot person, which I actually have a section in the book that tells people how they can get a hot person. But that's not, give what us you a preview. Come
1: on, give us a preview. Come on. Give me, give me well, a preview of that section of the book. Well, one of the
2: big things about, well, I talked about how looks impact your chance of getting a response and, you know, that a 10 reaching out to a 10, according to you know, people who are asked to rate the photos is you have a much higher chance of getting a response than a one reading, reaching out to a 10.
1: Sure. But I was
2: shocked, you know, not surprised at all. But I was shocked the odds of what happens when a 1 reaches out to a 10. Like, what's the odds they get a message back? Like, a 1. Like, this is someone, like, really at the bottom of the barrel, uh, you know, on physical appearance, <laughs> reaching out to, you know, a borderline model. Sure. And I thought, okay, what are the odds of the response? I'm like, okay, one in a billion. Like, uh, yeah. so that's so not you're, I would say, like,
1: yeah, one in a million, literally.
2: One in a million. Like, that's just not going to happen. And it was around 14% if it's a man reaching out, and it's around 30% if it's a woman reaching out. In the data set they use, it could be a little different for different dating sites and there are some caveats. But I think the general point that asking someone out, you may have a higher probability of success than you think, and then you use that, combine that with basically, there's a law of statistics. If you have a 14% chance of getting a yes, and you do it 30 times, you have a more than 98% chance of getting one yes. So if each time you have a 14% chance and you do it one, two, three, four, five, you keep doing it 30 times, you'll get up to a 98% chance. So basically I think what a lot of people don't do enough is just ask more people out, uh, you know, and that's certainly been, uh, you know, which, you know, cause I think people are scared of rejection. I understand why people don't sure. do that uh, and humiliation, But I think a lot of people, you know, if you look at, sometimes I'm walking down the street, I'm like, how did this person end up with that person?
1: We Uh, all say that, Seth, we all say that. How did they, did they just ask, it was a numbers game. I think I'm
2: concluding, uh, that it is largely that they played the numbers game and they, uh they asked out a lot more people and they got rejected a lot. If you say, if you see, you know, a guy and you're like, how the heck did that guy end up with that woman or that man, or how did that woman ended up with that man? My read of the data, you know, I've looked at a lot of different studies is probably they got rejected more than everybody else on their way to reaching that, uh, that kind of person out of their proverbial league.
1: It's a no- <laughs> It's so funny and good. That is amazing. Full disclosure, I am affiliated with Capital Investment Advisors, which is a full service and a fee-only financial planning and investment management firm in Atlanta and Denver and Tampa and Phoenix or wherever you are. And if you'd like to take your retirement planning or retire sooner journey to the next level, Capital Investment Advisors would love to help. You can find our team and schedule a time to chat right at yourwealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R wealth.com.
0: Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: All right, so let's go with a slightly easier one. Well, no, actually, this one seems even harder. This one's way harder to me. Um, when it comes to success, or people achieving success, uh, where, what do we learn about that? Who ends up successful? What does the data science say around that? And, uh, and by the well, way, what do you, how do you measure that? Are you just talking about income? or you, Yeah, there are, are many ways notoriety? to measure
2: success and data science will tell different things on different measures. And, you know, then there's a question, does success make people happy? Which is a whole other question that data can help us on. But there's a sentence that really stuck out to me that the typical member of a top one percent. uh kind of the typical richest American, is the owner of a regional business such as an auto dealership or beverage distributor. And that's kind of not how we usually think of a rich person. I mean, we usually think rich person like Hollywood, athlete, financier, maybe startup founder. And definitely there are lots of those in the rich people, particularly if you get to, you know, billionaire status, uh, they're going to be dominant. But if you get to just not not just, but you know, the very healthy people making like one and a half million dollars a year at least. is kind of dominated by this, these small business owners, uh, frequently in very boring fields, like uh, I find boring. You don't have to find boring, like auto dealerships or beverage distribution. Uh, and frequently, it's it's fields that have some sort of protection against competition. So auto dealerships and beverage distributors are kind of protected local monopolies. And other fields have their own ways to kind of give you a little protection. So you kind of got to find this niche, unsexy area that has some sort of protection, and then you're just crushing it, making a couple million bucks a year, uh, living the dream. And it's 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 not the path most people. When you say you know I want to be rich, you know you move to Hollywood to be an actor, you move to Silicon Valley to start your company, uh, you move to, move New to York, Wall Street to be yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. Wall Street to go into finance. And definitely those are options. But and most people aren't like. Uh, you know, let me get into the auto dealership business or the beverage distribution business or uh, you know, some of these other businesses that really are allow you to crush it.
1: Yeah, it sounds like that wouldn't even work on a dating profile. Beverage distribution. <laughs> what industry are you in? Yeah. Beverage I think it's your distribution. You're a beverage I'm, gonna distributor, put, I'm gonna put them over there with the accountants. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you're
2: a beverage distributor, maybe you just have to put like your income like right there. Just be like <laughs> two million dollars a year beverage distributor. <laughs>
1: You have you have data around making us a good parent. And I don't even know how you how do we even measure how do, what do you say is good, how do you even measure that?
2: Yeah, so that's another area where uh I you know, there's obviously a lot of different measure measures, but one of the things that's surprising in the data is how little overall parents matter. So you would think I think most parents, I'm not a parent, but also, I just want to apologize. I wasn't dissing the accountants or, or the ones on the one to ten scale or the shorter guys. I'm just presenting
1: <laughs> the data. <laughs> no, that's I, I always say that when I have. I say, listen, it's not that there's anything wrong against this group, that yeah. group. I'm, it, like I mean, like we have happy and unhappy retiree traits, and yeah, one yeah. of them, I think one of them showed up on the unhappy retiree list was hunting. And I remember, like, getting real feedback, like that's, ah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, no, no, no. I always say, it's <laughs> yeah. data. It's not what I think. It's yeah. the data. I'm just, I, I'm just so presenting. Nobody's data, gonna blame exactly. you. Uh, so anyway, so the first thing in parenting, parenting yeah. in the data on
2: parenting is that the overall effects of parents. The way they study this is pe- adoptees. So sometimes people are there are these adoption programs where it's kind of randomly determined uh, what who ends up who your parent ends up being, and it turns out kind of parents matter overall. To much less than just about everybody thinks. On most dimensions, income, education, there are a few things you can influence. Uh, one of the things you can influence most, actually, is how your kids think of you. Do they think they had good parents? So you can't change how educated they are, how rich they are, how happy they are, but you can change, you know, how they think of you, which is something that is pretty valuable to most to most parents. But so you know, some of the big things. Uh, Again, education, income, happiness, parents don't really influence things, values, uh, parents aren't having a huge impact. So, you know, all these decisions we sweat about, when you actually look at the overall effect, the effect just isn't that big. Uh, That said, uh, there is one decision that parents make that may have kind of a disproportionate impact. And that's where parents raise their kids. So there's all this research, again, from tax data, which is just becoming available to researchers, that where kids grow up just can dramatically impact uh, any outcome we, we can measure in tax data. So how educated they are, how rich they are, uh, whether they have, have kids as a teenager. a uh, Neighborhood really does matter for uh, parents. And. What is it about a good neighborhood? Like, why are certain, yeah, what is that? Uh, really good,
1: yeah. How, and we yeah, can, how also, do you measure that? Or, like, what's good?
2: Yeah, we can also compare it to uh, other facts about the neighborhood. And it turns out a lot of the things you think might really matter so, you know, great schools or a booming economy those don't really matter a lot that much at all. The things that really seem to matter are quality, the qualities of the people in the neighborhood. Do people are Two percent of two parent homes, uh, a percent of people with college degrees, percent of people return their census forms, a very, very random uh, measure. But it seems to be something about adult role models, giving your kids good adult role models. And there's actually also studies that if you have a daughter, if you raise her around a lot of female scientists, she's more likely to become a female, a scientist herself when she grows up. So I think we don't think how much the other adults we're exposing our kids to are impacting them, and uh, you know how they turn out. Uh, you know, and even if you know, apart from the actual place you live, the city you live, the block you live, who are you exposing your kids to? Like, are these people you want them to turn out to be? Uh, I think one one kind of thing. One of the reasons that parenting is overrated, but neighborhoods are underrated is kids have complicated views about their parents. So sometimes kids think their parents are the coolest people. Sometimes kids think their parents are the the least cool people, the people they don't wanna be, the people they wanna rebel against. But neighborhoods, kids tend to think they're pretty cool regardless. So they may rebel against you, but they're not necessarily gonna rebel against the other people you expose them to. So I kind of recommend outsourcing parents, parenting a little bit. Expose your kids to people you want them to turn into.
1: Parenting is overrated. Neighborhoods are underrated. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take that as probably the favorite thing I've heard in a long time. That Yeah, and that is true. I do think, I think about it, huh? Yeah, I'm thinking back as, I, I'm thinking back to when I was a kid, how much did I consider or look at and judge my parents on their friends? And I guess thinking back now, I don't have ever thought of it that way, but I guess, yeah, it is It is important. It's a big deal.
2: Yeah, I mean, which are their careers? You, you might see someone who, you know, is a beverage distributor and they're crushing it and they're like, have this great life. And you're like, oh, I want to be a beverage distributor. Uh, you know, there are all <laughs> kinds of ways it can play out, right? Uh, so, yeah.
1: Yeah, I I think that that is interesting. That, that makes a ton of sense. I think it was my... Um, My little league, one of my little league baseball coaches who I always looked at as rich because we used to go over to his pool and like after games, he's the only guy with a big pool and he would pay for hamburgers. I always thought, wow, he's giving everybody hamburgers and hot. Like this guy's got to be rich. And you know what? He was a small business owner in an insurance agency in southeastern rural Pennsylvania and probably made an absolute killer. He had like (laughs) a cool truck. I remember he'd drive this giant... F-350 truck. He's got this great... You know what? And that's maybe why I wanted to become an entrepreneur. It's it's not an insignificant thing to, for me to remember in my mid to late 40s relative to when I was like seven. Yeah. And I still remember that. Maybe it had an impact. All right. What about... And, and this goes back to... I want to go back to success and then happiness for just a second. Is it is it mostly... Because you're a data guy, you can't, you're not really defining what success is. Is it? Are we pretty much having to look at income data here, or is there any other measure of success?
2: I mean, yeah. Sometimes, like one thing I think about as a data scientist is you go to war with the army you got, not the army you want. Uh, like as Rumfeld said in Iraq, yeah. uh, you know, you go to war with the data you got, uh, and. You know, there aren't great data sets that compare, you know, every kid in the United States to how happy they ended up. You know, we, the data sets that have every kid in the United States are administrative data sets from the IRS, uh, you know, income, education, uh, marriage. Uh, so it obviously would be great to also measure happiness on, uh, you know, in that dimension. How much does a neighborhood impact adult happiness? Because I think obviously money is not, or ed- and education aren't the only things that matter. But uh, on that question, there isn't data. So.
1: How about this? What makes in now, again, this is a harder question cause it's even broader than success is, is the, is the, is the term happiness, right? So I, we write about the happy retiree here. What do they do? What are the five financial traits of the happy retiree? What are the five life habits of the happy retiree? What, how do you define it or what makes people happy? And then what, what data are you finding to figure this out?
2: So there's kind of revolutionary understanding of happiness. Uh, Thanks to iPhones. Uh, So not iPhones haven't made people happy. They make people miserable, Uh, (laughs) but they actually have allowed us to understand basically how miserable iPhones and other things uh, make people. There's this project mappiness that I became obsessed with. It's really cool. They ask people uh, on their phone, they ping them uh, maybe multiple times a day. They say, uh, who are you with? What are you doing? And how happy are you? Uh, it's, it was founded by uh, George McCarran and Susanna Morato, two British economists. And uh, they built this data set of more than 60,000 people, more than 3 million happiness points. Like just this revolutionary understanding of, you know, kind of people ranking one to 10, how happy they are and what are they doing? Who are they with? And they ranked 40 activities, basically how happy someone is when they're doing each of 40 activities uh, on average. Uh, the number one activity was uh, making love and intimacy, uh, which wasn't too surprising except it was kind of funny that people were stopping their sexual activity to answer the survey. (laughs) I'm like, ding, yeah, I'm like, oh, let me take a break from that. So tell Mappiness that I'm a 10 out of 10.
1: (laughs) Uh, All right. So that's like the, that's unshakable, right? That's boom. That's Making love. Yeah, making is, love you're gonna, uh, is, you're, is
2: uh un- number 10
1: out of 10. 10 out of
2: 10. Uh but then other things near the top uh were maybe a little more, you know, not not shocking, but gardening very high, exercise high, uh walking, karaoke singing really high.
1: Uh Ooh, yeah.
2: And I actually did a study of my friend Spencer Greenberg. We took these 40 activities. And we just ask people to rank how happy they thought people they thought they made people and we can compare, okay, these are how happy people think these activities, the joy people think these activities bring, and these are how happy the activities actually make people. And let's see what activities are kind of overrated and underrated.
1: Love that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And the overrated activities. We're like almost all the massive rate, rate, rate activities all fit into a very similar bucket. Uh, they were things like resting, relaxing, watching TV, uh, playing computer games, uh, uh, social media, basically passive activities, watching TV. Passive activities don't make people happy, but we think they do, they're going to make us happy. So lying on the couch and watching Netflix, you ask people, you know, how happy you think that is? Yeah, you, yeah, that, that's a pretty good day. You actually ask people who are lying on their couch watching Netflix in the moment, how happy are you? They say they're actually unhappy. And the huh.
1: activities wow.
2: okay. that, makes- that give people more joy than we expect are things like going for a walk with friends, uh, yeah, going out with friends, uh, going to a museum or a show. Kind of things that require more energy, those tend to give people more happiness than we expect. So I think we're all kind of fighting our own minds, our own laziness, basically. Our minds are tricking us (laughs) to do nothing, Uh, to like lie on the couch, play that computer game, watch that show. uh, And really, that's not a path to happiness. You got to go out and do stuff if you want to be happy.
1: Well, I think it, this really relates back to the happy retiree. And I and I, and I do the, the happiness results I've gotten. And I, I didn't do it in the big data way like you've done. But it, it very much, it seems to have this high correlation around anything that's socially interactive, whether it's exercising or any sort of sport, whether it's tennis or pickleball, something that is active. Is really ends up ranking really high on the list, wh- whether it's physical slash social, maybe even better if it's both combined. But it's a, it's I I love looking at things as over versus underrated, and so again, resting just hanging out on the beach doesn't doesn't really rank all that high necessarily, well, unless
2: you're having sex on the beach.
1: <laughs> what what is the you actually talk about the ultimate thing in the world yeah, when it yeah. comes to like pure happiness is what? Tell our audience. Yeah, I said what that the is. data-driven
2: answer to life is being with your love on an 80-degree and sunny day, overlooking a beautiful body of water, having sex. Uh because those are actually the highest ranked of everything. So the highest ranked people to be around is your romantic partner. Person to be around is your romantic partner. Highest ranked weather is 80 degrees and sunny. Uh highest ranked Environment to be in is uh by your body of water and highest ranked activity is sexual is have is intimacy so you put them all together it basically converges on sex on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> the
1: uh, there's a reason that that a perennial drink was named that many years ago. Um, what about so what water? Where, how do you, how did you get the water data yeah. and like and how how are you. Is it just very highly ranked search that there's tons of people looking for water? No, so the water
2: stuff is again, the Mappiness Project where they compare, because it has GPS of using people's phones, they look where people are. And if you're near a body of water,
1: you get a boost in happiness. Warm water, yeah. warm and water, (laughs) and it boosts happiness. Yeah. Uh, In a good neighborhood.
2: (laughs) Well, if you wanna raise kids. If you're raising kids. Yeah, if
1: you're going to have kids. Um, <laughs> t- let's talk about money for a minute. Is there... um Have you found any correlation between more income? Well, first of all, there's, a, there's, the, there's, there's the distinction. There's income and then there's overall net worth or wealth, right? So your ta- tax records typically gonna, are, are probably looking more towards income. And it's a little harder to judge wealth. But again, if you have a billion dollars, you're probably getting millions in, in dividends alone. But my... But my question then goes back to, did you see a correlation between money and happiness, higher so plateaus?
2: You- there's a there's a popular study from a long time ago that said that uh, happiness plateaus at $70,000 a year, you might've heard of it, heard it. So like kind of sure. up until yeah. then there's a big effect, but at 70 K it kind of stops. That's actually not true. Better data has come out and it finds uh, that happiness, there's no point. That we found where happiness plateaus, it increases uh, throughout the income distribution. That said, it increases in what statisticians call a log form, which is basically doubling your income increases your happiness the same amount. So you need more and more income to increase your happiness. And going from 40,000 to 80,000 has the same effect of going from 400,000 to 800,000, which has the same effect of going from 4 million to 8 million. So basically, you need to. Uh, you know the the early effect the, the effects at higher levels uh, are are smaller uh, but but they're, they, they and the and the other thing to note is the effects aren't as big and this gets probably to your happy retiree study. the effects aren't that huge compared to other things. So people with a net worth of eight million dollars are happier than the average person. but the happiness boost of having an eight million dollar net worth, is only about half as large as the happiness boost from being married. So, in other words, uh, you, you know, money having an eight billion dollar uh, net worth is going to help, but just keep it in perspective that just getting married is uh, given would give you twice the effect of of a, of a net of of in happiness of that net worth boost. So, someone who's working nonstop and doesn't have any time for dating just to get that 8 million dollar net worth and sacrifice their friends that's probably not the best path to happiness uh, like the things that matter more friendships uh, marriage relationships those are kind of bigger uh, those have bigger impacts on your well-being than money but money does does have an effect
1: You're a data scientist. So I would ask you, I, I the way I look at the money data, at least the the research that we've done, is I think of it as this plateauing effect, but it continues to rise as income goes up or net worth, actually net worth goes up. But I call that diminishing marginal returns for each new dollar of happiness. Like, is that, would that jive with you? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm
2: saying. That's kind of this curve, that, a log curve that just slows down. So- except yeah, there okay. is some evidence uh, there's another study that says that there is this gain at at the level of about eight million dollars. They interviewed like a, people with a wide range of wealth. So there may be my theory on this so so one thing you also see in the happiness data is that doing chores really sucks. Uh, like people are not happy cooking, cleaning, waiting on a line. like that's just not you know that doesn't make people happy. And I think there is a level, you know, you talk about living on dividends. If you have a net worth of $8 million, you know, 4% of that is already what? 320, yeah, 320 K. Uh, you pay a little tax on that. You're living at a level where you can outsource. You can have a housekeeper pretty consistently, uh, you know, live in <laughs> a person. Uh, you can kind of outsource a lot of the drudgery of life. And I think that does uh, help a lot.
1: Okay. So you're saying data did see at least some sort of material, at least a little bit of a boost at the $8 million net worth level. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Interesting. And, and so this a little jump up and, and you attribute that back to, is this also from the data or is this just, no, this that's my hypothesis. I don't know
2: the reason for that, but okay. if I'm thinking about why would 8 million kind of reach that point, that's when you have such freedom to get out of doing the things you don't want to do and devote, you know, devoting your life to, you know, uh, you know, if you look at the studies on what makes people unhappy, a lot of things that make, pe- tend to make people unhappy are things you kind of have to do in the maintenance of life. So working at, for example, uh, this is kind of depressing. Working was the second least happy activity. It was just slightly above being sick in bed.
1: Hold on. Okay. So gee, you got to be kidding me. So no. out of the 40?
2: Yeah. Out of the 40, the, uh, this is George McCarran and Alex Bryson. So give the, me
1: the bottom couple here. That's crazy. Yeah, so I, I actually, I, I would have told, I actually thought you were going to say like working was number like five or no. six on the list.
2: No, uh, okay, working, working is very
1: low. Is, it's number 39,
2: 39. Yes. Yeah. Sick in bed is number 40. <laughs> 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 yeah. It's kind of depressing, isn't it? Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. What what's what was thirty like thirty-eight?
2: Care care or help for adults. Uh, you know, not telling oh, people yeah. do that often, but if you're caring for mom or dad, uh that doesn't make people happy. Uh waiting queuing.
1: Waiting in line?
2: Yeah. Uh administrative finances organizing. In a meeting, seminar, or class. Yeah. Traveling, commuting, and commuting
1: just alone is 34. Wow. Okay.
2: And housework, chores, and do it, housework and chores is 33. So, one of the things you see in the activities at the very bottom is there are the annoying things that you have to do as a part of life, right? So, you can't not wait in lines, Uh, you can't not work. Presumably, you have to feed yourself. Uh, you have to take care of administrative, finance, organizing. You might have to commute. You have to do housework chores. Do it yourself. So I think the fact that those activities, perhaps not surprisingly, rank so low, is one of the reasons that people above a, work, a net worth of eight million dollars or ten million dollars do legitimately get a boost in happiness. Because if you're if your net worth is that high, you are able to do a lot more fewer of those annoying things.
1: Sure. Yeah. You're not as, yeah, you're not, you may not be working. Um, yeah, a lot of these are outsourceable. You're right. Yeah. At that level, but but
2: only in extreme levels of wealth, you can't really, uh, stop working and you can't stop work, stop working and stop doing chores. Uh, if your debt worths even three or $4 million, maybe you could stop working, but you would have to live a frugal lifestyle and do a lot of the chores. So you can't, the only way to stop doing both is to have a really high net worth.
1: How about the, I know that's something you talk about as the work trap. Can you explain that?
2: Well, just that work, you know, does, uh, you know, it is the second lowest ranking activity. And uh, they also, from the same Bappiness Project, they look at uh, what people are doing while they work and my read of the data is the only thing that really makes work tolerable is working with your friends. So interesting. Yeah. So if you're, if you're at work, but you're also with your friends, then work is not so bad. Uh, if you're, if you don't like the people or you're by yourself, then work's going to be pretty tough. So I think that's something that people under value in picking a job or deciding whether to stay in a job. Do you like the people you work with?
1: How about wealth building? What are some of the biggest misconceptions around becoming wealthy or wealth building? Or is uh, that?
2: Well, the fact that a beverage distributor is the is one of the more likely paths to that was definitely. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess that's. <laughs> a misconception. Uh, definitely the importance of owning something uh, rather than being an employee. Uh, that's also clear in the tax data. About 80% of members in the top 0.1% own their own business. So again, you see, you know, a lot of TV, you might see CEOs and, you know, employees. That's that's really not you're pretty capped there. So uh, you know, even if you're on a pretty lucrative employee path, it really doesn't compete with owning uh your business. There, there's a fun fact that Uh, the richest, it was, uh, pointed out by the data scientist, Nick Majuli, the richest NFL player in history is Jerry Richardson, uh, who also became the owner of the Carolina Panthers and he played in the NFL for two years and then (laughs) he stopped playing and he bought up a bunch of Hardee's franchises and became a billionaire. and you compare that to Jerry Rice, you know, the best, one of the best wide receivers of all time, Jerry Richardson has 30 times the net worth of Jerry Rice uh, because he owned his product in a way that Jerry Rice never, never did. So even, you know, obviously Jerry Rice still made a lot of money and more money than uh, most, most, of, most of us could dream of making. And being an NFL star is a legitimate path to wealth, but it's it still, it doesn't really compare to that, the fact that he he's nowhere close to the richest NFL player. Uh, or that, you know, Peyton Manning or any of these guys aren't close to the richest NFL player. That's this guy who owned a lot of Hardee's franchises does show the value of owning.
1: Yeah. It makes sense I mean, think about Shaq, I watched the Shaq documentary the other day. He, he's legitimately, I think halfway to a billion and he owns a ton of pizza huts and he franchises. So he's a real, he's a business owner. The, um, the, how about this? Let's go back to, we're talking about building wealth and success. One of the uh, ideas I think you talk about in "Don't Trust Your Gut" is about looks and oh, yeah. success. What's that to explain that to our? It's kind our of sad, retire uh, sooner, audience.
2: It's kind of sad just how much looks matter in like every dimension of life. Uh, so there's a study. I, I find this sad. I don't know if other people find it sad that you try to predict who rises at West Point, who's like who rises in the military, and you they. They've looked at all kinds of data. You know, what was their GPA? What's their family background? Uh, what were their athletic uh, accomplishments? And the number one predictor of success in the military is having a face that other people rank as dominant. So basically forget everything. If you just look like you should be dominant, you will rise higher in the military. And uh, this improvement proven in politics that looking competent is one of the biggest predictors of a politician winning you can predict 70 percent of senate races just based on uh, which candidate looks more competent which again is sad we'd like to think you know the winner is going to be the one with the uh you know the best ideas or the smartest the hardest working it's frequently is someone who just looks the part uh, there are also studies these are even more depressing looking baby-faced is a massive predictor of being a. uh, uh judged innocent in grand juries. So just like, ah, that guy couldn't have killed those people. He's looking, look at him. Uh, he looks like a, a, a you know, cute. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a little depressing uh, how much looks matter for success.
1: Wow, and and anything on income and looks? Have they done studies on that? I'm yeah, sure? I mean, also
2: just that looks are a big predictor of income. But one of the things I did, I did this a uh, little study on myself Uh, where I could just, I tested, I created using AI, I expect nobody to do this because you have to be nerdy than me, Uh, different versions of myself, uh, versions of myself with different hairstyles, different glasses, no glasses, smile, no smile, beard, no beard. And I asked people to rank kind of which one looks uh, the best on many dimensions. And I found out I looked the best with glasses and a beard. Uh, So now I usually wear glasses, except when I'm on a podcast interview because I'm too close to the screen. But now I usually my look is uh, glasses and a beard, uh, which is apparently the best version of myself according to the data. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm like, if data matters so much, I might as well figure out how I come across, right?
1: Well, okay. So you, and this is something that we we touched on earlier, is that have you you were saying that it's hard for you, and I think it's just hard for people in general to take the data and use it? Or are there any, or it, what do you think the easier things are for you to use out of your data?
2: So definitely the beard thing. So now I definitely always keep my beard because it uh, people take me more seriously with my big, full beard. Uh,
1: it makes you look more prominent. More yes. prominent, I guess, yeah. Uh, you and rise quickly in the military. Plenty
2: of gray. Uh, an increasing amount of gray in it, I think will just only help. Uh, I think- some of the happiness stuff I've used, but it's hard. Like I, I still, you know, I still find myself, you know, my friends invite me, Hey, you want to go out and, you know, go to this show. And I'm like, ah, but you know, there's a Knicks game I want to watch. And I just want to lie on my couch and watch the Knicks game. And it's really hard to overrule, you know, even though I know the data so well, I know the data says, go out, go out with your friends. I find it hard to do. And, uh, you know, but but I think it's helped on the margins knowing the data, uh, and you know, I don't have kids. When I do have kids, I th- I think I will maybe there there are, there's a website I talk about in the book Opportunity Atlas, where you can see how good every neighborhood is for raising kids. So that's definitely something that I would look in if I had uh, look at if I had kids. Uh, so I de- definitely there are areas where I, where I am using it, but it it, it is. Wait, tech- to, uh,
1: is that a, is that a, uh, is that something you have online or in the, yes. you're saying in the book or yeah. online? Online. Right. The opportunity atlas. Yeah. Right. Huh. So you could really zero in on what a zip code or even further than yeah. that?
2: Yeah. census tracks so even smaller than zip code. Yeah. It's pretty wild.
1: I'm going, I'm, I hope mine ranks higher else I'm moving. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm going to go look at this as soon as we're done. And yeah, I'm yeah. Gonna, if it's not good, I'm moving. <laughs> How, um, so you've tried to implement some of this, but, this is just like the, the habits of everything that we know. We know we should eat the Mediterranean diet. We know we need 30 to 45 minutes a day of vigorous exercise. I mean, we know all that stuff, right? We just, it's just, I don't know why, maybe that'd be an amazing thing to figure out. Why is it so difficult to do the things we know we are supposed to do? Can we can we get some big data around that? Or do you yeah, already know think the that's, answer to that? Yeah,
2: I think that, that may be a follow-up book. Like, here's all the things you should do. And then the next book would be, here's how to actually do them, uh, which is, you know, yeah, yeah would be useful i mean another one uh, social media uh there's increasing evidence that social media is terrible for our mental health uh you know particularly teenagers but for lots of people and they've done experiments where they've asked people to quit facebook to quit TikTok, to quit instagram and they report uh, big increases in happiness uh, big decreases in depression but you know i've known that and i still find myself spending much of my day on twitter and facebook Uh, and, you know, so I think, you know, the next, the next level is using this data to really, you know, learn to do these things because we didn't, some of these things, you need the data first to say what you should do. So we didn't know before seeing the data, just how bad social media can be for mental health. But once we have that data, the next level is, okay, well, how can you actually stop doing these things that are bad for you?
1: So is it that well agreed upon, right? I mean, so, so you got, there was a period of time where the thought is, oh, well, social media, how can it be bad? You're connecting with lots of people and your old friends, right? Then you hear studies that friendship and close friendships in America have gone down by 50% over the last 25, 30 years. So what happened with social media from thinking it might be a pretty darn good thing to just, Almost the consensus says it's really pretty horrible. Is that, is, do, do most people just agree that it's just, terrible?
2: It's a common, it's just so many studies and so much, it's just data. I mean, you look at the rise in teenage mental health problems, it's shocking how high depression rates have risen among teenagers, particularly teenage girls. It almost perfectly tracks uh, the smartphone, the rise in the smartphone and the rise of social media. And then these studies, like I talked about, where they're literally randomly asking certain groups randomly assigning people to groups and one group there's no intervention one group is paid to stop using facebook and they just report a large decline in uh depression and other mental health problems so uh you know a lot of these things it's just you're waiting on the data you're waiting for the academics to look at it and uh, i think you know the academics have looked at it and the you know the research is pretty overwhelming
1: How many people read the books they buy?
2: (laughs) Uh, Very low. That's a study by Jordan Ellenberg, uh, where he uh, analyzed Kindle data and how often people make it to the end of books. And for nonfiction books, like the books I read, science books, pop science books, uh, you know, the numbers are 3%, 5%, 7%. It actually motivated me. uh, My first book, Everybody Lies, I... I was struggling so much on the conclusion. I want a perfect conclusion, and I was, you know, torturing myself, taking walks, showers, everything. You know, what's the conclusion? Then I read that Jordan Ellenberg study. I go, "Oh, F it! Uh, <laughs> I don't care. I'll just, you know, phone it in because nobody's reading anyway. You know, I, I the, the hard work's behind me, <laughs> so that allowed I'm me to." Done.
1: Finish. Three only three percent of it. Now, what about in a in a fiction? So some
2: of the yeah, some of the. You know, some of the addictive, you know, romance uh, fiction can be 70, 80%. So some of those can be, pr- can be a lot higher.
1: Okay. Yeah. The, have you ever done studies around the, the ro- romance and fiction novels that, that I've seen for my entire life, but I've never know who actually reads them. Are those a thing? I, I, it's just, somebody must read them.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, I don't know the demographics. I could guess the I haven't seen the, the, the demographics, but I, uh, you know, there's probably a lot of deception about what books people are reading. Uh, a lot of people probably aren't, imba- are a little embarrassed. I've done some work on that, but, uh, you know, if you look on social media and what people report they're reading, it's always intellectual stuff. It's, you know, the Atlantic <laughs> and, uh, you know, nonfiction books, Danny, Conum's the
1: economist. Book. Yeah. And then,
2: <laughs> and then if you look at what actually people are actually reading, like the sales data, it's national Enquirer and romance novels. So, you know, I think people are embarrassed by uh, their taste for those, uh, that, that material.
1: Yeah. I, I don't see how people don't want to, want to read your two books. Everybody lies and, uh, and don't trust your gut. I, you know, I didn't ask you this, maybe it's rhetorical, but what's your explanation around why everybody lies and do they, do they really, does everybody really lie about everything or just like a few things? I mean, I think
2: there's part of the reason we lie is it's not, it, it can help us advance. There's a strategic element to lying. So, you know, if you, uh, if you're on a dating site and you know you exaggerate uh, your income or your height or you minimize your age and you know those can allow you to get more dates, the, the lie might eventually be uncovered. But uh, if you're you know yeah you know a lot of lying people lie in their resume and you know, or shade the truth. You know you don't want to say nobody on their resume is like yeah I wasn't a great employee there. Uh, you know, I, I, I it wasn't my best work. I I didn't do much. I slacked off. I was on social media much of the day. Everyone lists all their you know grand accomplishments. Uh, I think that's probably smart. So there is some uh, some uh, some sense in which lying uh, makes some sense and does serve a strategic purpose. Uh, I think we also lie to ourselves a little bit. There's uh, there's a great line from George Costanza in Seinfeld where he said, "It's not a lie if you believe it." So
1: is that credited to Costanza? <laughs> yeah,
2: I think uh, it's Costanza line. And I think that kind of shows that there's value in if you, if you lie to yourself, then you'll be more convincing to other people. So if you think of yourself, I would, you know, there, there are these studies that 90% of engineers think they're above average engineers, which is, you know, only 50% can be
1: impossible. Yeah, it's right. possible.
2: But maybe it's good to think you're an above average engineer because then you're when you're applying to a new job and you're trying to impress uh, a new potential boss, you'll be more you know uh, persuasive in claim, your claim that you're a great engineer rather than real you know a more realistic assessment.
1: Parental concerns: sons versus daughters.
2: Oh yeah, that's just Google search data where parents are much more likely to ask if their son is a genius. Or is gifted, and they're much more likely to ask if their daughter is overweight or unattractive. Uh, it's it's uh, much more cons- much more intrigued by the intellectual potential of their uh, sons, and much more concerned about the physical appearance of their daughters.
1: And that's again, that's just that's seeing what people are caring about. That's you, you would never have, you'd never read that in a parenting book.
2: Well, and that might be parents may be lying to themselves. They may not think. They might have a son and search, is my son a genius? And think if they had a daughter, they'd ask the same question. But the aggregate data says that that's probably not true.
1: So maybe we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Um, and maybe the data is the same for podcasts. Nobody ever makes it to the end. So I'll phone this last question in. <laughs> if you were to, what in your opinion, if you were able to wave a magic wand and actually listen to your data, I, I'm sorry, enact or act on your data you're approaching retirement. You're somebody in the, you know, you're 60 and you're getting ready to retire. What data would you encourage them to really look, take a hard look at? What matters? You, you talked about what matters when we pick a spouse, even though we don't look at it. What matters if for the 60 year old American to have an awesome retirement?
2: I would say your relationships with other people are the biggest predictor of happiness and the time you spend with other people. So put much of your energy into close friends, romantic partner, uh, and enjoying your time
1: with them. By the water. By the water. (laughs) Awesome. Amazing.
0: information.